0: Hello and welcome back to Jim Burns Dave. We're doing something a little bit different this week. One, because Jim's not here; he's working on super secret projects, which is exciting. You know, later when he does the work, lazy git. But secondly, we're going to do a little uh, podcast about '70s cinema, which is which is pretty much the most middle-aged white man thing outside of. Uh, uh, middle of the road rock music uh, <laughs> to talk about and you know classic but, yeah, I mean classic both of those students. things are fantastic but, but a lot of people when we talk about films on the main podcast we kind of talk about 70s films as a touchstone and a lot of people always say oh you know they'd like to know more about it they don't know where to start or you know can we talk about it in a bit more depth so this isn't a comprehensive introduction there'll be a bit of chat about the french new wave but I'm not sure we're going to go into the whole no, shoot not too match. much detail I imagine no but we'll just have a, a general chat about the movies that we love from the 70s, why we love them, how the, how some of them got produced, and why they happened then as opposed to the 60s mm-hmm. or the 80s. I think the answer is probably Class A drugs for, uh, <laughs> for like the latter half of the decade <laughs> in the 80s. But uh, so Dave's got a few films he wants to talk about. I've got a few films we want to talk about. But as with most of the so called revolutions, they happen before. Or oh, they start to begin
1: before the decade to which people well, think so. I mean, this started a whole decade earlier on another continent, really.
0: Exactly, exactly. So go on, Dave, give us a little kickoff
1: then. I and- well, suppose if you're, if you're talking about 70s filmmaking, and when we're referring to 70s filmmaking, we're really talking about new Hollywood. Yeah. So United States. You're going to go back to the, the French New Wave. In France, appropriately enough. Mm, interesting. But I mean, I mean, that itself would have fit, would have fed off Italian neorealism the decade before and things like mm-hmm. that. But it was really just the the time that everything came together in terms of being able to shoot cheaply on location. You could do that with with equipment that you couldn't previously do, and then you know political upheavals as well, and and then filmmakers like Jean Luc Godard. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and, and a lot of the tropes that they set up then a decade later would would come over to Hollywood. So I guess was it '59? It really kicked off. You had uh, 400 Blows by Francois Truffaut, which is, if you're going to watch one of them, that's probably the most accessible one. That's, that's the one with the ending that everyone watch. remembers. I mean, Breathless is obviously the, the, the most famous one in 1960. I mean, some of his stuff, Alphaville, is, is a lot more difficult to, yeah. to get into. Yeah,
0: as with a lot of the, uh, especially uh, Italian neorealism, uh, it's fantastic, but you've got to strap yourself in. You know, it's got, it's got to be one of those... I mean, you've movies. got to really
1: be interested in the film history as much as yeah. I mean, anything
0: else. And, and then it's that sounds kind of well, I don't know not elitist, but it sounds a bit yeah. But it, it is those movies were made. I mean, one of what was it one of the frequent criticisms I think of Godard later on was that he just makes movies for his critics rather than for his audiences mm-hmm. because he knows that with all of the amazing film criticism that was going on uh, in France at the time and how that was feeding into how other people were making their movies, that he knew that he would have. Or exert an influence. And so, it was as important, or so it was thought, for him to exert that influence rather than just exerting it on his audiences. So, yeah. But The 400 Blows is the movie that apparently one of the Weinsteins, Miramax and now the Weinstein Company, claimed that they saw it because they thought it was pornography. Now, I reckon that's bollocks. I reckon that's just a good pub story. Yeah, well, I thought it was. Yeah, of course he's mate. Excuse me, it is the most French. <laughs>
1: I'm not sure there's any way. I mean, lots of them have got lots of sex in. So I mean, you're yeah. not really struggling for that.
0: Yeah, well, we're we're kind of moving past the or have moved past the code, mm-hmm. the Hollywood code, the uh, the system and. The star system is in its final days, or you know, just. I mean, they
1: were hemorrhaging. I mean, so we're moving over to the to the states now, but the um, the studios were hemorrhaging money on massive hits like Cleopatra and things. Yeah, and, and the lots were sitting empty, and it could be. And, and then, of course, when, when we get into American filmmaking, you're you're coming in with the advent of television as well, mm-hmm. and uh, and people are staying at home to watch that. And then you've got sexual revolution, you've got political upheaval with Vietnam. So I guess the decade we're talking about really kicks off. Uh, the very So the, the French New Wave pretty much goes from 59 to about 67. And then I think that's where the new... Because Easy Riders is always touted as the first one. But I think, it's, I think Bunny and Clyde in 67 yeah. is where it really starts.
0: So the guys who, who wrote it, was it Benton and Newman, they were uh, writers for Esquire, I believe. And they had this, uh, this script and they were shopping it around and they wanted Truffaut to do it. Uh, but he passed... to do something else. I can't remember what it is, but he he passed, and uh, I think Arthur Penn did it in the end. He directed. He did, it, he? yeah.
1: But went, I think it was. I think. I don't know if they took it to Goddard or Truffaut. So, but it went. It went through the two of them, and then at a party, he was sat next to Warren <laughs> Beatty. Because I mean, I mean, we, I mean, we've all
0: been there. Now, but do you want to be sat next to Warren <laughs> Beatty pie?
1: Well, now because I mean, yeah.
0: So if, you know, if you if you're not if you're new to uh, you know kind of like older filmmaking, Warren Beatty, there was a time when he was both one of the best looking most talented and most powerful people in town. That's three, that's even both. That's three, unbelievable. But he exerted, and we'll get onto this in a minute, an enormous amount of power over the studio system, uh, the studios themselves, at his co-stars and everyone, because he was a massive, massive star and he could play both ends. So he was, he could be a matinee idol. So splendor in the grass. He could do that sort of movie. Um, you know, but he could also then go on to do Reds in 1980. Well, I mean,
1: that's part of what he did was the fact that he was, he was a star and he, and he said to Arthur Penn, you know, I just, I, I've, I've realised early on that what I want to do is work with the best directors and mm-hmm. you're one of them. And I've read this script, which I think is amazing. And if you've got a star power that says your script is great, that helps you get shit made a lot yeah, easier. Of course, of course.
0: But they, uh, you know, is all of the stuff we'll be talking about is, of course, from one of the great books on the uh, on the subject, which is uh, Easy Riders, Raging Balls by Peter Biskind. But yeah, like uh, it's noted that Bt had made a string of movies just before kind uh, before Bonnie and Clyde, where if he wasn't waning, he was almost, you know, he was getting to a point in his career, as he said, where does he, he has to make a choice, and if he has a couple more flops. Well, not flops, but, you know, not setting the box office a lie. They're not important, but it, but
1: it doesn't satisfy his uh, ambition. Yeah, I, I, and it's it just also... to be considered an artist as well. Yeah, right? just he be was a pretty boy on yeah, screen. Yeah,
0: exactly. So they do this movie and uh, it does fucking gangbusters. Well, yeah, it absolutely <laughs> smashes it. I think it
1: costs three million to make. And then I, don't, I can't remember how much it made now, but an absolute fortune, which is why they then started going like, oh, maybe there's something in this artistry.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's important as well, not to, to forget about how important Faye Dunaway is in the, in the movie, how important she will go on to be throughout the seventies, especially in Chinatown, uh, which is pretty much in the top three greatest ever. That is true. And, but yeah, when we talk about the, the kind of the seventies, you talk about that as being, as Dave says, now's the time for you, you can have... If you are not quite seized the uh, means of distribution, you've definitely seized the means of production in a way. Uh, so the studios are completely hemorrhaging cash. They're making all these big budget musicals, uh, musical comedies that are doing fuck all divided by 12. And importantly, the guys who really started, the giants of the old studio system are all old or they just want to get out. So well, you've, you've, got,
1: got, you've got the Jack Warner. Jack Warner. this story. Yeah, was it the what the fuck's an homage? Well, yeah, he's, he's like, if I need to take a piss, this is not yeah. a good film. And they said about ten minutes in, he went for a piss. Then about twenty minutes in, he went for another piss. And so he was obviously like, I just, I just don't get this, yeah. Bonnie and Clyde. It's nonsense. It's gory. Yeah, and and then uh, so it was BT being like, well, what it actually is is a homage to you know the gangster <laughs> films of the thirties and forties. And uh, and Jack Warren just goes. What the fuck's a homage? I mean, how old? He's probably about 98 at that time? When all the studio bosses were super old.
0: Yeah, of course. And so in, at Warner as well, there'd been a big infighting between the brothers. And essentially, at this point, Jack is, Jack Warner's thinking, ah oh, you know, but not to put words in his mouth, but if I was him, I would think, fuck this, I'm out. Like, who is this kid? Why am I in the screening room? I don't, and that's the key point to understanding it, I think, is that I don't. I don't understand. Jack Warren does not understand what this movie is or who it's for. And that is the key to why the movie brats like the, the Spielbergs and your, your Coppola's and your Scorsese's were given enough rope to eventually actually hang themselves yeah. with. Because when you're a, if you're a studio and you're losing money and someone comes along and they direct this movie because you've taken a chance and it, it's 3 million and whatever and you've just chucked 60 million or whatever down the drain on something that's not done anything... And then suddenly it's a big hit or you just cut up, you know, a deal to do Easy Rider for almost nothing. was a half a mil, I think. Yeah, and then it comes in and then you start to think, like all oh, marketing managers, this is a trend. So let's ride. Well, you're
1: hitting the the swinging 60s. You're hitting that sexual yeah. revolution, the uh, Vietnam War.
0: Yeah. And of course, you know, there's stuff that's happening in France as well. Yeah. Uh, that time of student revolt and everything. But the people think that this is why the decade kind of burn so brightly and then just cut off. The director's decade is the 70s. Mm -hmm. You know, you had this uh, co-op, was it Friedkin, Coppola, maybe Scorsese and someone else, maybe Spielberg, they're forming the director's company where each person they could, it was financed by Paramount after the, the success of various movies, I think. And each director could take a certain amount out of the other picture's uh, net I think or
1: gross amazing uh, way to bury stuff
0: so how how long do you think it took before someone made a hit movie in that partnership and someone took the mo- for doing nothing took the money uh, and how long do you think it's before someone just didn't make a movie and took some money for doing nothing and how long do you think before William Freakin or whoever went fucking mad and decided <laughs> that they had enough of all this shit because they're making the movies like Dave you make the movie and uh, I'll just take like 10% cheers mate but we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves there but the, yeah, when people talk about the 70s, they idealize it as this, you know, the golden generation, and the movies are golden. The personal relationships of the, the people in it, for a lot of them, were extremely hurtful. Uh, George Lucas's uh, marriage breaks up, for example, when we get into the early 80s because of the success of Star Wars. The more interesting part isn't just the movies. It's how the people who made the films were really badly burnt by being allowed to do it. If you go from a guy,
1: for Coppola, who doesn't want to do The Godfather, well, he hated it. Didn't hated. He? But then you get I mean you had that Spielberg as well didn't want to do Jaws he didn't want to be the truck yeah. and shark guy. The truck and shark guy, right? But to me the most interesting part and again we don't have time to
0: go over like almost you know every beat of it but it's what happened to the people following it. I mean if you you think about the big stars of the 70s Martin Scorsese is a very well publicized drug problem couldn't really get a movie made. Well he could get movies made but he didn't not his projects that he wanted The Last Temptation of Christ until he does Color of Money. So he, uh, so he, he can't really get anything off the ground because towards the back, end, even though he's done Raging Bull, even though he's done Mean Streets, even though he's done all these great movies, Taxi Driver, the problem is he's got. Firstly, according to some sources, I think including himself, he's got a debilitating drug problem. Mm. But then he winds back round to do this new version of the big budget musical as at New York, New York, and it just folds. And so the, the they're young. They're
1: only in their well, early most to mid of them, 30s. Are, uh, are late twenties, early thirties, yeah, with the exception of, would, say, Woody Allen, who I think yeah. was in his. I think Spielberg's the one who kind 40, of, at least, well, late thirties to early
0: forties. Who was enough of a straight shooter to to get out of it and to go through the eighties and continue. George Lucas didn't do anything for years apart from well, he did a lot of behind the scenes work, but he didn't direct from was it seventy seven well, to ninety nine, so. Yeah, you have that. You have, and the personal cost. William Friedkin as well. He did a lot of really amazing. He did French Connection, did The Exorcist, and then he did Sorcerer. Mm-hmm. And again, by the time we get to the end of the, we. What I'm saying is, we get this this golden image, but really the the kind of you know the bright lights, the flame out. So I mean, the that, most interesting part. That of whole
1: it. decade has that that glow of like you you. If you go back to anywhere, you, you always picture yourself going back to there, don't you? The, yeah. the swing sixties and then yeah. the I want GCA set 70s and... Hollywood. Yeah. That's what I want, right? Definitely. But
0: uh, yeah, so everyone everyone had their issues and, you know, I just there were a few people who who just didn't come back from it. There were people who once the studio started to get wiser to the drone graphics, once people started to realise that this actual grand directorial experiment where they control almost everything
1: is actually now starting to lose money in the same way that it was before. And to go on that point, that is built on, again, the French idea of the mm-hmm. auteur um, because Jean-Luc Godard had come from a film criticism background. Yeah. It was the idea that the director is God, basically. And, they're, and, and, and that they're telling personal stories and that, that, that's, that everyone is there to service our stories, which is certainly true to an extent. Yeah, yeah. And then, so that's
0: why you kind of have these incredibly pumped up music videos in the 80s because... What you've had is you've had a, a bunch of young film literate uh, studio executives who have grown up through the 70s watching these movies. And then they've come in and they've, they're have a Don Simpson and they are now in, in charge of something at Paramount. And they have that kind of rock and roll sensibility maybe by rock and roll mean tons of drugs <laughs> and whatever. But they know they're in control and the director... Generally in the 70s cares maybe a little bit about what how much money it makes. But you know, it's for the art, man. Don yes. Simpson means- gives gives no fucks about the art, how he how they see it. He sees it, he's you know, crafting memos, loads and loads of memos about how Flash Dance, this, that, and the other. Flashdance directed by Adrian Lynn, who did fucking um a Jacob's Ladder, which is a, an amazing movie. But he also man. did Flash Dance. And you're like, okay, so that's a nineteen ninety for Jacob's Ladder. Uh, Flashdance before it in the 80s, like, hmm, that's a bit of a change of pace Yeah, there. for sure. But, you've so you've had these producers who come in and now now they're the stars because the amount of money being made once the doors opened by Jaws, the sound barrier, as Biskin called it, the 100 million. Uh, never thought it happened. happen. Godfather did 82 million, I
1: think. Excess maybe slightly more. And then, bang, Jaws kicks the doors wide open. Well, I mean, there weren't summer blockbusters until Jaws. You kind of put your daft B-movie pictures and stuff and in the summer and then that yeah. exploded into life. Yeah,
0: and so just to go, just finish the 80s chat there. So you have all these producers who know that they can make the money. That's how they need to make the money because they've got to please the studio and they've probably got rich deals with them, with the studio themselves. But they also they also think that they have their fingers on the pulse of what the movie going public wants. And I think towards the end of the 70s, there was... Well, I wasn't there but a few people saying America had had its time where they were how many downer endings do you think about the downer endings to almost any popular movie the Parallax view you have Watergate
1: all the president's men doesn't it's a triumph I mean, most of the 70s films do not end yeah, very the, the well even the father. comedies like Harold and Moore then with a <laughs> yeah exactly so you have
0: this introspection that was driven again by unrest by social unrest war domestic and foreign essentially well, you've got the civil rights movement kent state ohio yeah. so you've got all these things that are building up to it and then yeah, a few people are saying by the towards the end it just felt a bit okay maybe we need a bit more something a bit more upbeat because or we, escapism.
1: You know, so i mean the 80s certainly fucking provided that it?
0: Listen, listen rocky falls the greatest music of all time <laughs> dave so we'll just we we'll, we'll do a bit more reflection on it through some movies. So listen, give me some movies. And we'll talk around them that you
1: love from their era. Well, Chinatown is certainly one that really stands out as one of the best scripts ever written. Uh, obviously, we talked about The Godfather. Um, I mean, Apocalypse Now. Well, that's that's the end. And that's not really. I mean, I mean, that's probably probably in production for the entirety of the seventies if it was released in seventy nine. Well, it's going the, to be uh,
0: Verite in the late sixties, wasn't it? With uh, George Lucas set to direct, and they would go out. And cover it, and cut the movie as if it was you know live footage. Which I suppose if they were in Vietnam, it kind of would have been. But they dropped actors in or whatever, and then they realised that's just mad.
1: Francis. And if you haven't seen the uh, documentary around that, go and um, check that out. It's yes. incredible.
0: George Lucas presents uh, Apocalypse Now. But and this just while we're on uh, on Apocalypse Now, when we talk about how critical and commercial successes and failures work and how they absolve or damn certain people over time. You think about George Lucas, and it's a bit sad now. I think in a lot of ways, certain people just think about those terrible prequels. Then they were uniformly dreadful. The second one, Attack of the
1: Clones, may be
0: the worst movie we've ever seen. I think it are. is, yeah. It, really. It's running pretty high, my all-time worst
1: ever. But There's some good ideas in there. In fact, exactly. there are probably more interesting ideas in the in the prequels than there are in the initial three. That's going to get there's some roll back. I think there's bigger, there's bigger like things ideas addressed. they're not made in any way, no, but <laughs> a watchable format. But,
0: but of course, the, the thing with with George is that you know he does THX.
1: THX is great. American Graffiti is does great. American
0: Graffiti as well, which is this this great reflection on you know the car as the star of America, teenagers, and. So then he does Star Wars, which he thinks is going to be a complete flop. And uh, then he, you know, then he just recedes from public view, really. Mm -hmm. And just doesn't direct anything for quite some time. But at the time, George Lucas was seen as a really vital, experimental filmmaker.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of Lucas and uh, Spielberg, a lot of these were out of uh, film schools, Mm -hmm. either in L.A. or in New York, NYU uh so they had an understanding of film history as well which kind of lent on for a while yeah and
0: then, again as as they were young they could they could not just see they didn't see it on a on a chart a distribution chart or a profit and loss statement they were in it they saw it if you think about star wars uh luke skywalker george lucas grew up his father wanted him to take over his empire of i think hardware stores and stay in wherever they were modesto maybe and And he had this car, and the car was the freedom. He said it was terrible, but he would tinker with it all the time. And so, of course, American Graffiti is a play on that. Star Wars, the land speeder that Luke has, Mm -hmm. is not great. Also, I've always wondered, what are they farming where Luke lives? Sand? I mean, fucking hell. (laughs) Is it it water? (laughs) But then the pod race scene, and the pod race scene is by far the best part of any of uh, the recent Star Wars movies. And by that... Apart from Rogue One, I mean um, Episode 7 as well. It's so good, and I think the reason for it is because it's just another sequence that George actually knows something about. Mm-hmm. So this this trade dispute... These are movies for kids, says George Lucas. George, it opens with the word fucking trade embargo. Like <laughs> se- seven, seven-year-old kids don't give a shit about mm-hmm. trade embargoes, okay? They, what they give a shit about is action, movement, speed, and more importantly, a sense of adventure. And that pod racing scene... The reason why it's so good is because George fundamentally understands what it's like to be Anakin Skywalker, to want to get off that planet, mm-hmm. to go and have the big adventure. And there's a um, there's a sequence in the incredible documentary, The Beginning, which is on YouTube. It's the making of Star Wars Episode 1. Firstly, where George says to uh, Frank Oz, who does Yoda, or did Yoda, says, I made... On the site says I made more American Graffiti, which was the sequel, and it made ten cents. And he says, you know, it's possible to ruin these things, which right now is the most heartbreaking thing in the okay. world. But he also he sits in on the on the pod race sequence as it's being as the sounds being mixed, and it it's only then where it sounds like he's in complete control, where he knows where he's directing, because he's saying to the people who are doing the sound. He's like, no, the sound needs to be different when is it? Sebulba's behind him in the, the pod race and like, nudging him. He's like, the sound mix needs to come up. And he's really animated for mm-hmm. George Lucas. And then on the on the rest of the scenes, he just sits there and it's the, it's the first AD who actually, I know this is not uncommon, but the first AD, if you didn't know anything about Star Wars and you were asked in, to look at these three sequences, you'd be like, who's the director of this movie? And you
1: think it was the it, you think it was Yeah, the- I mean that that is not uncommon in terms of like you'll have a director. I mean I, I don't like that style of directing where you hide away and attend and then mm. give someone else to go and yeah. show you. But I mean the first is definitely the one that runs a set on every set. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's but much sorry, better to he's... be near your actors getting performances yeah, but than again, hidden away. Especially in a digital Realm, you want them to. Especially um, if it's your vision that is going to be put on impulse. You kind of got to.
0: Well, exactly. I know that George. Take the helm. The classic Harrison Ford thing where it's, you know, saying George only has like two instructions and is, like faster, more intense, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But in that documentary, there's. And George wasn't at his best in making the original Star Wars. Apparently he was really physically and mentally unwell by the pressure of it and thought it was
1: just going to kill his career. Well, when they voted to do overtime on the last day of shoot and is the it British no? crew went, ah, oh, fuck off, mate. <laughs> it's like, wow, they really must have hated you. Yeah,
0: well, yeah. But but there's just there's a, the lamentation of what could have been, I think, in this episode one making of, where you can, obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, mm-hmm. but Well, the some, technology
1: wasn't there yet to match his vision. It is know, now. But
0: in the pod race sequence, there was, because the speed at which the, the background is moving, is fine because it's being obscured, obfuscated, essentially, mm-hmm. by the dynamism of the scene. But yeah, it's check it out. It's fantastic, uh, that documentary, The Beginning. Uh, to see George Lucas's empire kind of... It was built on sand, essentially. It's, it's very sad to watch him go through that. And there's a very telling scene where he speaks to is it Ahmed Best, who played Jar Jar, who was the, the body map and the kind of motion mm-hmm. capture guy. And uh, they're in Tunisia, and Best has this horrible suit on, and it's like a fucking two million degrees. And uh, Best uh, is standing there, and Lucas comes up to him and says something like, uh, It was very hot today. And he says, uh, Best says, Yeah, it's hot, but you know, I'm cool. And there's this unbelievable pause, and Lucas goes, Yeah it's like, he uh, it says something, paraphrase, like, um, I wish I was. And it's like, oh. And it, this whole thing, this billion dollar. It's got
1: to be horrendous being in that position where, because, I mean, you must have been aware as you're shooting and watching it come back, being like, oh, it's it's not. I mean, you have that whenever you shoot anything of any scale. Yeah. It's different to how you yeah. visualize it. But when you're relying so heavily on... The effects that you're essentially inventing <laughs>
0: yeah as well John Noll, the effects guy from ILM uh, is speaking with some of the staff and they're like essentially the, the shot we need just hasn't been invented yet so uh, I guess we'll just some of that we're actually inventing it as we go but there's that famous sequence where uh, I think uh, Red Light Media did this and they were George is sitting in the screening room for the first rough of episode one Ben Burt the co-editor and uh, lightsaber sound man uh, and all around genius is sitting there and uh, Rick and Callum the producers there and some other people and when it finishes fucking hell it's like George looks devastated Ben Burt like, immediately wheels on him to say well you know we're in trouble here because the edit is too tight we're bouncing these different emotional tones mm-hmm. within seconds of each other and we can't unless we reshoot it and even then, we're in trouble because you can't lose one without the other. And Rick McCallum is just sitting behind them and he doesn't say a word. Maybe that's just the cut, the edit, but he doesn't say a word. He looks like Michael Corleone. He's staring at the screen as if to say, This is shit. And there's that heartbreaking moment where you're like, This is not what I thought it would be.
1: Especially at that point, having waited decades yeah. to. But to, to bring get it back, to, to, back
0: to the 70s, after uh, Star Wars had been shown. Uh, ...in a rough version... ...I believe it was Spielberg... ...Brian De Palma... um, ...maybe John Milius... ...and Lucas and some others... ...went out... ...because he showed his friends... ...and... ...De Palma apparently wheeled on him... ...saying... ...what's this shit at the beginning... ...this title crawl... ...fuck that... ...that's gotta go... ...who are these characters... ...I don't understand these names... ...all legitimate problem... ...criticism that you would have got... ...but he went with it... ...and obviously the title crawl... ...for Star Wars is now... ...so important... Mm -hmm. ...to the franchise... But, uh, yeah, in, in terms of the movies that they were making then to the movies that they're making now, if you compare Coppola, and I, I always think with the 70s, is there's a bunch of people, you think about it, look back, it's a grand plan. They made these movies. They were, the, they were geniuses. They knew what they were doing. They were setting new tones for blah, blah, blah. Look, they were a bunch of fucking guys who wanted money, and they were probably told, if you don't do X movie, The Godfather... You won't get to do why movie. Francis Ford gave a shit about fucking gangsters. He didn't care. He was making fucking Finian's Rainbow, the Rain Like He didn't care. But when he got into it, he started caring. But then about then you could it. see that he Doing the could best do with it. that
1: story, so then you can get to tell the ones that you want yeah. to tell.
0: And I think the the big the big takeaway is that the guys who in who did the movies to get to the other movies. Those other movies are nowhere near as good as the ones they had to they make. They didn't want to make. So yeah. William Friedkin, as we said, who directed the Exorcist, uh, and- uh, The Exorcist, uh, and The French Connection, he and to live and die in LA uh, much later on, he wanted to remake. What was it uh, Wages of Fear? Sorry, mm. he wanted to. Re- he wanted to remake this movie called uh, Wages of Fear. Anyway, so he sits next to a director Truffaut. Is it? And they're talking, and he's like, "Please let me remake this movie." And the director's like, "Why would you want?" like, "Why would you want to remake this movie?" And he's like, I, "I just need it. I need this movie." And he's calling him maestro, according to Biskind. So he remakes this movie, and he calls it Sorcerer. And it's uh, event. I think it was meant to be Sylvester Stallone, but uh, eventually, eventually, it's Roy Scheider from Jaws, mm-hmm. who plays. Uh, a guy who's driving a convoy of of a truck filled with like nitroglycerin or something across really terrain in South America or Latin America or something like that. Anyway, the movie's called called Fucking Sorcerer. It has no wizards in it. And by this time in the 70s, the marketing guys are like, I don't really understand why this movie is called, or getting towards the end of the decade, why is this movie called Sorcerer? You know you're going to confuse people. And it was then, you could see the director's power eroding and he made this movie and it was his passion project I'm not saying that The Exorcist or French Connection he wasn't completely invested in because he was because those movies are fantastic but the guys it's almost like they get the prize and don't realise it and think that the next bauble is the one and they end up they end up going mad the movie didn't do that well and it was like oh well
1: you've I don't think that. I've ever seen Sorcerer
0: Bogdanovich so you can't really talk about something to really no, about Peter Bogdanovich I mean, not he is, again, he was a critic, a uh, film historian, and still is. And then he got his chance. And he, uh, along with Polly Platt, I think it was his wife at the time, mm-hmm. She, she's the, the vitally important person behind him. She's the power behind the power. And when they divorced so he could marry Thingy... From The Last Picture Show. From The Last Picture Show. You know what
1: I'm... Um, uh, yeah, yeah we'll, her name uh, will be on the thing. Yeah, it's definitely worth checking out Last Picture Show if you haven't. Yeah, seen Civil that Shepherd. One. Civil Sorry. Shepherd. So I'm having a bit of a brain malfunction here. Uh,
0: that he can he loses his power. He loses it, and then it, you can. It's actually interesting to read up about where Bogdanovich's life goes after that with a woman called Dorothy Stratton, I believe, who's murdered, and it's all very weird. But anyway, back to the main point is that. When we think about Sony's filmmaking again, we think about uh, the men a lot, but it's actually the women. And the Spielberg's are,
1: editor and.
0: You know, the, the mother cutter. Um, <laughs> and, you know, people like Polly Platt, people uh, like Marcia Lucas, people like that who were, again, who were giving the guys, you know, maybe picking them up when they were like, oh, I'm, I've, I've had trouble with this or I can't do the movie. And it wasn't like they were just at home going, right. You've got to, you know, come on! You got to get your shoes on and get out the door. They were in the editing room. They were, they were cutting these guys' movies. They were helping write these guys' mm. movies. They were, they were on board for everything. And it seems like a lot of the guys, once again, once the success was there, you kind of forget how they got there yeah. a little bit. And uh, the story goes that George Lucas's wife said that she didn't want him to do uh, Return of the Jedi. Because you know it was taking a toll. These these big productions, all this, and you know they are
1: brutal to he, work on, on on feature films. You're I, doing and America's even worse than the UK. But you're probably doing like eighteen hour days, and then you come home and go yeah. straight back and do it. You do it six days a week, and especially for and Luke's, physical work, as it's well. your
0: money. You know, it's for him as well, and he yeah, he had everything, or well, seemed to think he had everything, and then so he said okay, and then he did it, and they split. And I think the, the personal toll of the success and of the drive to repeat the success for mm-hmm. a lot of the guys, they wanted to maintain their status. They wanted to make these big movies. And in a lot of ways, they'd already made the big movies. And I don't know whether they resented that later on, that it was almost like they were past... Their, not their peak but they were past their moment before they'd even realised it mm-hmm. and uh, the only person who really
1: didn't do that was Steven Spielberg no, but his style was be, more
0: amenable yeah. to yes. the 80s
1: and 90s Oh, definitely by a long way to those type of stories that he tells yeah
0: and even though he did Schindler's List and Same Pro at Rome, within, uh, you within know, a few years of each other Schindler's
1: List the same year that he shot Jurassic Park that's fucking incredible and
0: didn't he do it because he uh, he wanted to do Schindler's List and they said you've got to do Jurassic Park so, it's, what interests me most about the decade is, is not even the films, really. It's the people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've not said a fucking single word about Jack Nicholson.
1: We haven't. <laughs> but another massive... I mean, we'll get on to Jack Nicholson, but is, is Roger Corman, who isn't the most uh, talented of filmmakers himself, necessarily, but was excellent at giving people a chance. And um, so he gave Martin Scorsese a chance to give a bunch of I don't know if Jack Nicholson was one of the actors or not he was in
0: the uh, Little Shop of Horrors wasn't he didn't Corman's New World Pictures do um, that maybe. but yeah a lot of but actors Danovich and a lot targets of targets for
1: uh, directors is, owed, owed it to him for him you know giving giving them their shot and then allowing them to go out and And I think Scorsese is like no we didn't get paid out of any fucking money but who cares we weren't in it for the money we just wanted to mm-hmm. he was like yeah I've got film I've got a camera go out and shoot on the weekends go make, go make something yeah and obviously,
0: Corman knew what he was doing in terms of the the money that he would receive against what they would receive.
1: Well, I, think, I just think this is the best way. You get someone who's good at that spotting, spotting uh, talent, and they basically go give people a, a bit of money and a chance to go make stuff. Take take the risk with it, and that's what we did. And you've got an entire army of filmmakers who are still shooting to this day and considered some of the best. Yeah, directors. yeah, absolutely.
0: And they they came out of that, you know that. Time when you could, when as you said, kind of at the top of this about the means of production. But I still think th- that you, you can could... now, though.
1: I think that, that like you've got your fucking Iron Man twenty, right? That makes a ton of money. Use some of that to back some new voices. Oh no, but I'm talking about finally or for the first time, equipment
0: not being oh yeah no, was, gigantic, yeah. almost like well bolted, the size of a living room, bullet yeah. to the floor, yeah. So, but yeah, Jack Nicholson is, is obviously really important. A lot of people think about Jack Nicholson, about him being a, a a superstar. And, but a lot of people don't really recognize how smart Jack Nicholson is. I think if you look at a lot of the choices he made, he was just, he was another guy that actually weathered the 80s, 90s, and even until, until The departed, I mm-hmm. suppose, in 2006. So he was a guy who knew exactly what he was doing. And he was very smart with his investments, with his money. He had this reputation of being a mad, you know, partier. And he was, there's no denying that. He used to live in Bad Boy Drive, next to Marlon Brando, literally next to Marlon I mean, Brando. What a fucking and Warren b But he also he was he was very smart with what he did. He knew what he was doing with Batman in eighty-nine. He knew exactly mm-hmm. what he was doing with that. But he was also he a bit like BC, he was but to a bigger level, he was a global megastar. And he parlayed his good looks and natural charm and talent into an empire that could control the things that were meant to control him. So the studio, similar to what Arnold Schwarzenegger did towards the towards the end of the 1980s and into the early 90s. Well, it
1: definitely became the instead of the director being the driving force and the power, it certainly shifted to the actor. Yeah, the the producer
0: and 90s. the actor, because the, then you would you would be packaging them. So there's that memo from or who is it? It's one of the studio heads, Michael Eisner, maybe, who said, who used to be Paramount uh, Disney. And he says, the days of the 80s mega blockbuster are over. We're getting to a kind of late or mid to mid 60s problem again, where we're constantly just chucking good money after bad, just to try and recoup losses. And we've got all these blockbusters. So, we're not going to make a movie that costs more than $100 million unless Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, that's in the memo to the, the Christmas memo, 1990. But all of the, it's no secret or surprise, I should say, that a lot of the people who really made the transition out of the 70s, as you say, were the stars. If you think about Robert Redford, for example. Robert Redford is pretty much the world's best looking all time man throughout the 60s and 70s. But he's moving towards doing, if not Straight out directing, but doing a lot of collaboration work. He goes on to do Sundance, obviously, mm-hmm. but he also knows that the package is the key. He understands that later, you know, as we get into it, and so a lot of the people who were very, very idealistic, who were who couldn't shift out of that, your know, Bogdanovich's. well, you're Baldanovic heading into the-, the
1: marketing and advertising boom, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, Bogdanovich
0: has nothing to offer uh, beyond. Being Peter Bogdanovich, and that is not a slight because he is he has made some of the most brilliant movies you ever hope to see. And as a historian and critic, he's also fantastic. But when it now came to being more visual, you know, he wasn't an actor. He had acted, but you don't really think Bogdanovich is an actor. He he then started to have to fund or wanting to fund his own movies because he couldn't rely on that star power that a Nicholson or a BT, or a Redford could rely on to say, okay, well, I'm part of the package, so essentially I'm guaranteeing you money because people want to see the new Jack Nicholson movie, Mm -hmm. and guess what? I'm fucking in it. So he didn't have that, and in the end, uh, he spent a lot of money making a movie, and they all laughed, I think it was called. And it bombed, and that was it. 5.5 million, sorry. You've lost the money, because it's your money, and there's no... Root back for Bogdanovich there into what he was used to the life mm-hmm. he was used to to living and so yeah like I say the the most interesting thing is the people and the and the relationships and of course you can't talk about the seventies without uh, as we said without without the women essentially because again we talk you talk about the man the men uh, you talk about people like Angelica Houston an incredible actress absolutely incredible she. uh and it's kind of annoying that she's just kind of known as Jack Nicholson's like yeah. ex long term Like you know, there's a whole thing where she's you know, her father is uh, John Houston, um, and it's kind of like because he's so famous, because Jack Nicholson's so famous, you lose this. Hmm. You know, you kind she gets a bit lost in there, the yeah. in the mix, which is is a huge shame. And but if you do any reading, and you know, we'll, we'll put some uh, books and everything in the. Uh, in the summary below you'll, you'll soon find out that they are the women are the power behind the power for a lot of the people and a lot of the guys really lose their way as soon as uh, as soon as they are out as of the picture so to speak <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah because but I mean the Biskin book particularly uh, Easy Riders Raging Bulls but then also the story that comes around that with every filmmaker going fuck you I didn't say that um, this oh, is oh great and it's so great. yeah you
0: get some, a lot of cross cutting where people go I didn't fucking do that I didn't say that but then a lot of people are like who was it that was saying was it Jen Nicholson? I
1: can't remember who saying, like, I was gonna sue him, but then I realised the truth was way worse than what he Exactly.
0: Written. Exactly. So Robert Town, I suppose we'll just go on to Town for a quick second, who writes Chinatown. I mean Robert Town wrote Mission Impossible 2. Okay. <laughs> so um, you know, it's not, you know, it's not been all, not all hits. Not all hits, but uh well I mean financially that was probably a hit, but writes uh, he writes chinatown and again it's when you talk about music you know you have your first album and the first album goes absolutely massive then you have your second album problem you've been working on the material for years and you know it you've honed it what do you do next and then by the time you get to the third album you've got oasis's problem but town had this script and it cemented his place his legacy the script for chinatown is so unbelievably amazing when you watch it, it, the way the movie unfolds, they're like a puzzle, it's so beautiful. It's so clean uh, without it being boring. The movie, and when you're you're almost smiling along. Like fucking, that is good. The way I think the intersection of both, the that's in both
1: of our top tens of all time, yeah. isn't
0: it? And a lot of people bang on about Chinatown script, but there is a reason for that. Mm-hmm. It's fucking brilliant. But the other people around that who make it brilliant, Jack Nicholson with pretty much the performance of his life, and then of course. The Roman Polanski, and then Polanski, uh, Sharon Tate is murdered. Yeah, he 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 leaves the country, and then
1: by the Manson's.
0: Yeah, and I'm not saying uh, that they're related, but obviously Polanski then, at Jack Nicholson's house, has the incident. Was it at Jack Nicholson's house? Oh, right. with that Nicholson's house. That I believe she was underage. Wasn't she? She was thirteen. Thirteen, and the then top. he uh, he flees to Europe. And
1: well, that's still ongoing now. That's
0: still ongoing. Yeah, I mean, he was uh, was it five, seven, or eight years ago? He was arrested again, I believe. Yeah, well, she's
1: actually saying now, can you just let me get on with my fucking life? I want to yeah. drop these things, but the yeah. prosecutor—I mean, literally a month ago—was like, no. Really, I hadn't yeah. seen that.
0: So, I mean, the—I'm not saying that obviously those what happened to to Sharon Tate or anything like that. I'm not, thats not good. But it's the, when we talk about the '70s, a lot of the times we talk about the movies, but the movies aren't really the things that form. They don't, they don't arrive fully formed. You know, Jaws didn't just happen. They didn't wake up one morning and go, that's some post. Right, oh, that's wonderful movies arrive. They happen and they are the sum of the people, both their experiences, their skills, their expertise and their lives. Yeah, and that's not exists in a
1: vacuum. It's yeah. all influenced with what became mm. before
0: it. But the uh, the excesses of the directors, their crimes, their misdemeanors, mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why By the time that Michael Cimino does Heaven's Gate, which bombs and loses the most money at that point ever, they just go, you know what, fuck it, you're out. Because we are back in control now. The producers are saying, we understand, we're back, because we're not the old studio heads. We're not 9,000 years old. Mm -hmm. You
1: know, we're we're exactly... I mean, a lot of them literally were in the 90s at the the end of the 60s. You
0: you have guys, you know, like Eisner, uh, like Don Simpson, like Jerry Bruckheimer... Brookheimer produces uh, American Gigolo in 1980, which sets the tone for the entire decade. Uh, Paul Schneider directs it, but it's
1: uh, it's, a, it's almost like a 70s movie with an 80s. Mm-hmm. There's some great stories about him as well. An it?
0: interesting fellow, shall we say, <laughs> sleeping with a loaded gun in his mouth. Yeah, anyway, you. but um, yeah, it's impossible to speak about um, about everyone, but that movie is the kind of the executives are controlling it Brookheimer is behind the scenes it's got the synth music that's uh, you know it's got a Georgia Moroda doing the soundtrack Armani gets his big break in America mm. because the main character is, is dressed Decked from head, head to toe to Richard Gere is you know maybe Days of Heaven is better he's actually really good in Pretty Woman but he's at an all time best because one more subject, Richard Gere I find him to be a bit blank faced. You know, he's a he is at that point, and still very good looking. But I find him to be a bit blank behind the eyes,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, kind of a bit like Tom Cruise in some of his movies. Tom Cruise is a lot more charming though. But in that movie, as this empty vessel uh, male prostitute who just entertains rich clients in Beverly Hills, but secretly maybe wants a bit more. Perfect, absolutely perfect. But that was by the time we we're there the sensibilities of the 1980s which again as we were saying about the 70s had started just before Mm -hmm. and the director's various problems was going to scupper a lot of them unless they had 55 billion hit movies behind them Spielberg unless they could package themselves a Beatty or a Nicholson or a Redford or unless essentially they would toe the line shut the fuck up get in the studio and be like look right Martin listen get off the gag make some fucking movies mm-hmm. and then we'll talk again i mean raging balls 1980 yeah but then after that bit of a slump shall we say <laughs>
1: Yeah,
0: well but i think it's just actually to him like he does the king comedy which is known people love that movie mm-hmm. and i know people who think that's his best movie but again he himself speaks about he's like i just can't get anything off the ground and the problem with how you see directors is that they are responsible a lot of the time, or were, for making sure that the movie just gets made. You're, in, if you're a studio, you're essentially entrusting this person not to fuck it up. And if you've got a drug problem or you're, they think you're on the wane, You know, do, would Warner Brothers give Christopher Nolan another $300 million if they thought that it wasn't going to make it back? No. Why oh, would of you? Not. So, yeah. Anyway, listen. What a decade. Bad. It, it actually, if we were to list the sum total achievements of everyone there, it would be both good and absolutely... Yeah, I, I think think it'd be just an incredible
1: result. list, though, isn't it, of, of, of films to check out. And again, I think it just comes down to them giving a little bit of money to a lot of artists and letting them just be individuals, which and I think that... I don't know, where, where's filmmaking going from here? Do we, are we going back to, I guess, the fact that equipment is now more affordable, that we go out and shoot our own? Scorsese <laughs> <those> himself <laughs> This says. doesn't involve action heroes, because otherwise there's, there's not really much...
0: Yeah, Scorsese himself has said that he's, he's happy that you can essentially go and shoot a movie mm-hmm. now. And I think people forget or just don't know how difficult that was to, oh, cut, like, yeah. to cut, to edit. Well, you had to physically cut <laughs> film, yeah. And the machine with which you'd have to run it to cut it. Uh, and there's so many people that we, you know, we've not mentioned uh, of, the, of the directors when you think about the 70s from a more populist point of view, which is this is the starting point. When you think about Hal Ashby, for example, mm-hmm. we mentioned Howard Maud, but he won an Academy Award for being an editor. Yeah, you know he—that's where he was, and he was incredibly gifted at it. And at that point, the specialization that you need—and you still need it—but now you can cut a movie on your on your PC, well, a you, free program. Yeah, if you, with, with that, you you can get a cut together. Mm-hmm. Whereas before, you couldn't unless you broke into Paramount, you yeah. scaled the wall. It just wasn't possible, so I think there is
1: every every year people are like movie making is dead because well, they've said that at every point. And there's blacks, and Listen, all modern music shit and blah blah blah. But, yeah, it's, you
0: know. it's still out there, and the thing is, is that the problem with the seventies is that it disproportionately well it inverted
1: the level of quality to crap that. It seems so there's much so good much stuff, good yeah. stuff,
0: but it could only have been made that's in that the period. Sting, of history. That's
1: another great one. Dog Day Afternoon, Five Easy Pieces, The, the Conversation, <laughs> Halloween, Godfather, and Godfather Part Two. Last Picture Show. We've mentioned. But you could only those are the movies that, and those are, the,
0: and those are, the, yeah, the best known ones. There are tons and tons and tons of incredible films that uh, that were made there. But uh, yeah, I think that. They're all always yes. It's gone back to how it was. A lot of shit with some great stuff. Mm-hmm. But that's how it was it ever was. And the yeah. thing problem with the seventies is, it's totally distorted. It's like Liverpool Football Club, right? Liverpool Football Club in the seventies and eighties were incredible. And if you you know they won everything. They won fucking three European Cups. i think, thinking that's a four maybe, and. You know, they were smashing the league. It's like their imperial phase was like Man United's in the kind of nineties mm-hmm. and two thousands and then into the twenty tens. But the problem with that breeds is, is that afterwards you become accustomed to that sort of thing and you can't help it. and if it doesn't happen again. So Liverpool won the European Cup since then. They've not won the league, but they've won the FA Cup, I believe. They've won the
1: League Cup. They definitely won the, they won the, Cup in the same 90s. season, mate. Yeah. You've done they did their plastic treble. And uh That plastic treble won me a bet to send me to the final of the UEFA Cup final so I was fine with that. But still for a lot of fans it's difficult
0: and nostalgia plays a part to not go ah but what about you know this.
1: Yeah and and, and 60s and into the 70s is if you're going to be nostalgic about any time that tends to be it. Big time. Big time. So look we've got to go because we've got to do other
0: stuff now but again this is not meant to be exhaustive and so we've kind of It's just a
1: jumping off point really and I I guess just Google great films of the 70s and what you haven't seen, give them a go.
0: Exactly. All right, look, we're going now.
1: Bye. Thanks for listening. Cheers.